Welcome friends, welcome students at the at Flame University campus this beautiful Saturday evening. We are excited to invite today, we have with us Professor Lisa Trivedi all the way from New York, US. And she is, uh, I'm gonna read her bio and then I'll introduce her talk. Uh, Dr. Lisa Trivedi is the Christian A. Johnson Excellence in Teaching Professor of History at Hamilton College, New York. She's the author of Clothing Gandhi's Nation, Homespun and Modern India published by Indiana University Press, 2007, and Refocusing the Lens, Pranlal K. Patel's Women at Work in Ahmedabad, 1937, well in Museum of Art, 2014, as well as several scholarly essays and journalist articles. Dr. Trivedi is working on the comparative history of women industrial textile workers in the Bombay Presidency and Lancashire, 1900 to 1950. In her 23rd India Center talk today, seminar, webinar that we organize every month. Her abstract, her, her topic is in 19, 1937, the Jyoti Sangh, a women's social reform organization in Ahmedabad commissioned a young amateur photographer, Pranlal K. Patel, to take photographs of women at work in the city. Drawing upon the critical theories of photography, Dr. Trivedi tells us the, tells the remarkable story of this early 20th century photographic series for what it tells us about the past and how it might open new subjects relevant to contemporary India. She reflects upon her ethical interventions into the history of modern India through historical photography when read against the colonial arch archive. By taking up subjects rarely addressed in scholarly literature, Trivedi highlights the perspective of an early Indian photographer marginalized in Western photographic scholarship. Professor Trivedi, welcome, and the floor literally is yours, please. Thank you so much. So this is a slightly different format, um, which requires me to actually sit so that it can be webcast. Um, I may try to do a hybrid and I'm used to roaming around. So maybe somebody will remind me to stay here if I start to roam. Thank you so much for that gracious uh, introduction. I'm really delighted to be with you. It, it appears that we've worn out some of your compatriots. And I thank you for staying around uh, for my talk. I'm really thrilled to be at Flame University. It's, it's my pleasure and honor. I want to begin by thanking uh, Professor Pankaj Jain and the India Center for sponsoring this talk, as well as colleagues at the travel desk, including Romil Nathan. And uh, in absentia, I guess, uh, Professor Kedar Kulkarni, who I had the delightful chance encounter this last summer in the India uh, Office Records Records Office in the British Library in London. And I'm hoping it won't be too long before I can invite him uh, to New York to Hamilton College. We're teaching actually in very similar institutions, and I've enjoyed the engagement that all of you have had with the faculty who've been presenting today. So I'm going to talk uh, to you a little bit about and maybe, Professor Jane, maybe you can uh, make sure I know how to advance my slide. I'm not sure how to do that, actually. Um, before I start, I want to just uh, say that I met the photographer I'm going to speak to you about in 1996, when I was originally doing work on Gandhi's Swadeshi movement. And at that time, he provided a really critical set of photographs for my work, including a photograph 
uh, that's on the cover of that book, Clothing Gandhi's Nation. And in 2010, I returned to Ahmedabad in search of photographs of women industrial textile workers, which who are the subject of my work now. And I asked Prenlal, who looked something, something like this at the time, uh, if he had any photographs from the period of my work. And he said, actually, no, because mills were so dark and I had no photographic uh, lighting capacity at that time. But he said, you know, you might be interested in these photographs. So he started, he opened a box and he started just pulling out photographs one after another of women, ordinary women, at work in various parts of the city of Ahmedabad. And it's out of that experience with him that the exhibition and the photographs I'm gonna to talk to you about today uh, kind of came forward. I'm gonna give a little bit more of a formal lecture to you, okay? Approximately 100 photographs of women at work in Bombay's second industrial city, Ahmedabad, were taken in 1937 by, by photographer Pranlal K. Patel. The photographs were not publicly seen, however, for seven decades after their creation, when several were displayed in the refurbished head offices of the Self-Employed Women's Association and later in an exhibition of the Jyoti Sangh in their renovated headquarters. Why the photographs were not seen is a question that warrants our attention. In this talk, I'm gonna look beyond the visual expectations of those who commissioned the photographs to suggest that historical photographs can illustrate a story that society at the time the images were created was unprepared to tell. Many decades after their creation, Patel's series allows us to recognize the limitations of uh, historical archives and historical practices that previously render marginalized figures, including women, invisible in modern Indian history. Patel's Jyoti Sung series is extraordinary in the context of early 20th century photographic history for a variety of reasons. And I'm just gonna focus on one of these, but happy to talk about others. Patel's background and training in photography depart from the very uh, Indian photographers that are generally focused upon in the historical, in the scholarly literature. Most of those Indian photographers were connected to the courts of princely India. They were officials in the colonial administration, or they came from trained, uh, they came from families that were either artistic or trained by artistic families of some renown. Patel, by contrast, was an orphan who migrated to Ahmedabad, eventually qualifying as a primary school teacher. And in fact, he was a primary school teacher at the time that he took these photographs. He received no formal arts education. His introduction to the medium grew out of a hobby cultivated in the 1930s by participation in Niharika, Ambabad's am amateur photography club. Patel's photographic gaze drew upon his own experiences as a migrant and informal laborer in the city. His photographs offer an opportunity to explore the practices of India's amateurs photographers who have rarely been the focus of scholarship. 
Perhaps it's because of his background and unorthodox training that Patel's photographs capture subjects rarely visible in official records or commercial photography of the era. One scholar, Elizabeth Edwards, has observed historical photographs can unsettle historical narratives grounded in textual archive materials favored by historians in their representations of the past, while simultaneously creating, quote, historiographical think space where they can reveal and activate specific ways of having been in the world. Patel's series offers a view of women's economic roles in the cities that contrasts with archival records, which focus on a small minority of women who were employed in the textile mills or the formal sector of the economy. Instead, his vernacular gaze landed on women workers in the unorganized sector of the economy, rather than depicting women's contributions as peripheral to economic life and isolated from the public. That's what the historical archive would tell you. Patel's series pictures women as laborers across the city's major marketplaces and as integral to the city's industrial productivity. So from this invention in the 19th century, photography has been treated as a nearly unstoppable modern form of truth-making. That's what Professor Grant was talking about earlier, and a potential catalyst for social change. Photographs are among the most important visual and material objects of the modern era, but determining a photograph's meaning, as we learned earlier today, has been, it is a quite challenging thing for historians and for art critics alike. Theorists, since the invention of photography itself, have been perplexed about how to talk about these material objects. If the nature of meaning has been a question that has vexed many commentators on photography, theorists have achieved consensus that photographs do not simply reflect the world that created them, but rather actively construct the world they purport to represent. Again, Elizabeth Edwards writes, not only do they inscribe past moments on surfaces, they distribute the surface of the documentation of the past. So that's how these narratives can kind of grow out, right, and inform and sometimes confuse or misinform our perception of the past. Placing emphasis not only on what photography says, but also on what it does, Ariella Azule has examined the role of photography in chronicling the past and establishing modern community. In a really interesting book, from 2012 called The Civil Contract of Photography, Azalea insists that photography offered modern people new relationships of power beyond those of the camera, the photographer, the patron, and the photograph. And I find this formulation really interesting because it's almost at the cusp of your generation and its relationship to photography and social media. It's almost like she's imagining what is has unfolded for us. She writes, at the same time that a photograph lies in someone's hands, someone else can always claim the deposited image for themselves, or at least demand to participate in its safekeeping. Drawing our attention to the photograph's spectator, that would be all of you and myself, Azalea theorizes what she terms the civil contract of photography a modern humanistic ethics 
tied to the age of citizens and the photographic image. She suggests that the photograph can enable, quote, injured parties to present their grievances in person or through others now or in the future. So in other words, she sees historical photography and photography more generally as a very potentially um, powerful political tool to address, if spectators take that challenge up, the inequalities of the world in which we live. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the context of the Jyoti Sun series uh, that Patel created. And then after I do that, I'm gonna talk a little bit um, more about Edwards and Azalea and how they are challenging historians to use historical photography in ways that are other, well, ways other than just as pure illustrations of the past. Pranwal Patel did not choose the subject of women's labor. The subject was chosen by the Jyoti Sun, a women's social reform organization founded by Murdila Sarabai in April of 1934. Sarabai was the daughter of a mill owner and a niece of the city's labor, leading labor organizer. She had come of age in a city closely associated with nationalist politics. Her biographer, Aparna Bansu, explains that Sarabai founded the Jyoti Sun, quote, with the objective of becoming a pathfinder, a light giver for hundreds of women who needed it and to provide them with sufficient opportunities for their physical and mental development so that they could attain self-confidence and become self-reliant. And indeed, one of the images in the Jyoti Sun series is what I have uh, in front of you now. It's a self-defense class, and these are young members of the Jyoti Sun, not the leaders of the organization, but probably their daughters and nieces who are engaged in a self-defense class. In Mohandas Gandhi's estimation, the founding of the Jyoti Sun was aimed, quote, at harnessing the power of Indian women for the development of the nation. We see this also in another photograph. So part of the Jyoti Sun series are photographs of the Jyoti Sun themselves and their social reform activities in the city of Ahmedabad in the period. And so here you have a group of women who are winding thread that they have spun as part of Gandhi's Swadeshi movement. They're winding it you know, to go off to the Congress storehouse where it can be exchanged for uh, Kadi that has been woven. Now, why or to what end the Jyoti Sun wanted these photographs, Patel confided he never fully understood. But the primary school teacher was eager to take up the commission, and he created just over 100 photographs over the course of just a few weeks. Roughly a third of these photographs were of the Jyoti Sun's members engaged in social work, either at the organization's headquarters or in the neighborhoods in which they worked. And I'll just show you a, a few other slides related. You're gonna learn about Jayaben Thakur in just a moment. This is a photograph of her inside a Jyoti Sun store area in the old city. Here is the coupon book distribution area, sort of uh, adjacent to where Thakur is standing. The Jyoti Sung basically raised money by selling these coupon books and then middle-class women who wanted to support social reform efforts that they were engaged in would go in with their coupon book and they would purchase 
art. You can see there are some pictures of nationalist leaders in the back, um, sometimes snacks that had been made by the women that the organization was um, serving through things like embroidery and cooking classes, which is how actually a lot of the families of mill workers in Ahmedabad today, after the mills closed, a lot of the women have sustained those families through making snacks, which are sold uh, widely in the city today. Just show you one last one, these, these sung uh, women. Uh, here's a woman who is, and you can see her sari has uh, a sun emblem. That's the symbol of the Jyoti song. And she's standing uh, alongside uh, a woman, some women who are selling pottery they've made at the Delhi Dodo Bazaar. The overwhelming number of uh, photographs, over 60, depicted ordinary women at work in the city's polls. So that's what I will shift to now and in the city's markets, as well as on its major thoroughfares. Less than 10 depict women taking up new trades in the city. And those included typewriting, nursing, and telephone operation. I just wanted to mention that too. By 1937, the use of photography to wear away, to raise awareness of issues worthy of public concern or debate was a well-established strategy of social reform organizations worldwide. And you had movements in the late 19th century. Jacob Rees famously began photographing New York's immigrant communities to draw attention to the squalid conditions of these immigrants and to raise public action to help the urban poor. Women's organizations in both the United States and Great Britain were making use of photography not only to raise awareness of similar conditions in places like Chicago, Manchester, and London, but also to raise funds for their relief work and to recruit new members in their ranks. And this is what the Jyoti Sung fundamentally was aiming to do most likely. As Azale explains, the camera, quote, the camera opened the possibility of redefining the concept of citizenship and the conditions for its fulfillment. People deprived of citizenship, women first and foremost, began to take active part in this formal formation of a new world. So middle-class women are in India joining a nationalist movement. They are trying to, through organizations like the Jyoti Sun, they're trying to seize an opportunity to represent themselves and to play an active role in the transformation of their society. So the, the Jyoti Sung is doing that both for themselves as emergent middle-class women and also on behalf of the women that they're serving. Seeing women whose lives could be reformed by the Jyoti Sung's programs enabled a new national subjectivity sought both by women reformers and nationalists of the period. Now, as the colonial state was focused on demonstrating its own authority and power, it often focused on development and India, the development of a modern industrial economy under British rule figured quite prominent. However, women and working people who contributed to ancillary services and informal economic activities were rarely addressed in official records, written or photographic. And it's one of the major challenges for any of you who are working on women is just to find the archival sources at all. 
The British government of India undertook a targeted study of labor disputes and industrial riots in the Bombay presidency and in British India as a whole. You can read these records in the Maharashtra State Archives in Elphinstone College, as I have and many, many other scholars. Rarely do these surveys or reports ever comment on the kinds of work that we will see in these photographs, the people who were doing these kinds of work. On rare occasions when women workers did appear in the official archival record, they did so as problematic, sorry, as problems of public order or policing. So for example, uh, Professor Kulkarni was talking about the Contagious Diseases Act. So we find lots of records of women uh, at that in that particular circumstance. Women, the working classes generally, low and outcast people simply were not deemed worthy of state recognition. And that makes it very challenging for those of us who are interested in transforming his the historical record with a broader uh, range of people to do that work. But Patel took photographs um, that in some ways confirm some of these trends we see in the records, but his photographs say so much more than them. Roughly 60 of the photographs in this collection are of ordinary women. One third are portraits of individual women at work, many in domestic environments. This is a domestic environment. It's a, it's a poll. If you are not familiar with Ahmedabad, it has a unique old city in which communities, caste communities, and sometimes very uh, closely related family communities live within uh, a small enclosed area that can be completely closed off from the rest of the city by large doors. The poles are connected, sometimes by underground tunnels. So they were a defense within the city walls, a defense within a defense. And so you have these very close-knit communities. This photograph, of course, is probably of you know, a joint family of women who, uh, whose husbands have gone off to work for the day. And maybe in the late morning, they are sitting and embroidering perhaps saris or tablecloths right, with their children around them. I'll give you some other examples of some of these portraits. Jane women making whisks in the Doshivari Nipple, embroidering uh, common in this, here's inside the household. So not just outside in the pole, but inside a house itself, you get a clear idea of what a typical kitchen in an ordinary household looked like in this period. Mother-in-law in the back, daughter-in-law and two granddaughters. This is a particular, uh, particularly wonderful photograph, I think, of a milk cell and Patel, when he took these photographs, what he did is he got up in the morning, jumped on his bicycle. He had his camera, box camera slung across his chest and he would ride out to different parts of the city to photograph the women that he was commissioned to take. In this case, he told me a story that he knew he had seen this lady. She came once a week into Ahmedabad to sell uh, milk and so that morning he went straight out to find her because he found her an interesting character and he set up his camera and took the shot. Now, it's really important to recognize that this is really an early form of street photography. 
that Patel is working with a, a camera and with equipment that is ex so expensive, it cost about a rupee in 1937 to produce one of these photographs. So he was buying the film himself, taking the photographs, turning them into the Jyoti Sung, and then he was receiving payment from them for the photograph. So he could not make an error. This is not the world of digital photography where you can just erase, 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 where there's no cost. He had to be very careful in the composition. And he basically took one shot of each of these images that you were seeing here. And here's a block printer. So you can see that he's also capturing different kinds of women's labor just in what I've shown you here. This is the one definitely staged photograph. Can anyone guess why we think it might be staged? I see some hands in the back. Yeah, any, anyone. It looks ironed already, looks too perfect. The Exactly, right? And if you know anything about block printing, you know this is not, so he must have had, uh, he must have had a need for a block printer. He couldn't remember, you know, did the Jyoti Sun ask for that specifically or not? You know, by 2010, so many decades later, he could not remember about this, but there's no doubt. This is the one exception in the series that, that I find uh, where I think the photograph is clearly staged. So what you should be getting a sense of is that Patel's preferred mode of representation was portraiture. This enabled recognition of previously unseen subjects. When I say unseen subjects, I mean that who was photographed in this period? Princes and the royal families were photographed, um, industrialist families, industrialists, some upward middle-class families are beginning to have photographs taken. There really are not photographs of ordinary people because photography was still beyond the reach economically of most people. Patel's technical and aesthetic approaches disrupted colonial enact, both a colonial and nationalist gaze that was accustomed to seeing working women in a limited way, if at all. Two thirds of his photographs document two or more people, as you see in this photograph, of women selling used clothing. While women commonly worked with other women, these portraits also established that women labored alongside men. This is again in stark contrast to what the historical and colonial archive would tell you. Roughly half of the photographs portray women working in city markets or on city thoroughfares. So if you go to the Delhi Darbazar today in Ahmedabad, you will find the used clo clothing market looks much uh, the same. Patel's decision to locate the balance of his subjects on the major, in major markets or thoroughfares placed the Jyoti Sung's prospective middle-class specters in close, perhaps even intimate proximity to the people they otherwise might not recognize as they moved through those spaces. So how many of you look at these images of 1937 and think, 
looks like they could have been taken today. And how many of these women might we pass each day without really even seeing them? Okay, so this is what I'm trying to make clear to you that in 1937, Patel's decision to photograph these women is pretty remarkable. And it's, it's capturing uh, a subjectivity that you would not have seen represented in photography at the time. Perhaps because of who it inscribes on negative in paper. Also, it significantly challenges the economic, the political, and the visual priorities, again, both of colonial India and of nationalist India. While Dalit and migrant women uh, performing menial work might have found a place in the colonial and developing nationalist imaginaries, and therefore been visible to spectators at the time, Patel presents subjects who are neither in need of rescue by the colonial state, nor by reform of the Jyoti Sun or nationalists more generally. And I'm just gonna show you some other photographs here. <laughs> so this is a photograph um, in Raipur, and it's, Patel told me that he took it because this was the single woman owned shop he knew of. Probably her husband had passed away. She inherited the business and it was a rarity. And he consciously took a photograph of it. I also want to point out the extent to which he's showing us not just a portrait of a woman business owner, but of the context in which she worked. So you see there are children on the sides, at least three children on the sides of the frames. Uh, you can see a man standing in the shop beside her. So they are not the subjects of his portrait, but it's really important to Patel that he is not just isolating. We don't see her as an isolated person. We see her in a social context. So these two slides, uh, I'm afraid we're out of order. They, these two slides are to show you that he's taking photographs of both migrant and low caste women or outcast women in the city at the time. Again, women who I think the middle-class uh, members of the Jyoti Sangh probably would have a hard time actually visually recognizing as fellow equals, right? In a nationalist society in the process of uh, establishing itself. This is watering trees near Gujarat College. What Patel is doing is he's attempting to create an intimacy, an intimacy between the viewer and the women he's photographing. And perhaps the reason they were not shown for about 70 years is simply that the Jyoti Sangh, its members, its reader, the readers of its, uh, of its magazine were not ready to see these women. Perhaps the photographs were too demanding. We don't exactly know the answer, but I think it's worth speculating about why these prospective citizens could not be seen in 1937. I'm gonna do a close reading of a couple of portraits uh, also to talk to you a little bit about how I see he, his vernacular humanizing gaze working. 
Patel's choices in composition and technique shaped a vernacular humanizing gaze that made visible new subjects and prospective citizens through at least two kinds of portraiture. The first is a woman engaged in a particular kind of work. By capturing her industriousness in a particular occupation, the photographer represented these women as persons, not types. That's very important because the colonial state did take photographs of working and ordinary people, but they were all presented as types. Patel communicates this through the subject's setting and framing, which captured the physical setting in which his subject worked. He produces an intimacy that sets these portraits apart from formal studio portraiture or ethnographic photography of the era. So here we have a woman weaving baskets for a sweet seller. The photograph making uh, of this woman making baskets exemplifies the intimacy that I'm talking about, leaving us with questions that suggest connections. Who provided the materials that are stacked up behind her? Who would she deliver her wares? A contemporary viewer would notice the unadorned surroundings in which she worked. Was this the place the woman laid her head to rest? Was it just the place that she spent her day at work? Patel photographs his subject without her sari tie. Her petticoat wrapped up around her legs, exposing one calf. A soiled blouse missing buttons strains to conceal her ample figure. Although the woman making baskets did not meet Patel's gaze, she doesn't seem uneasy with his presence either. Through her willingness to be photographed, the basket maker connects herself both to the photographer and to those who carry sweets home in her baskets. I wonder, did she anticipate future spectators like us whom she would never meet? Reflecting back on his work decades later, Patel did not see his choices as political per se. Rather, he characterized them with a small but knowing grin as a form of humanizing recognition that can be seen also in another image uh, of two women making brooms. So there's a similar composition. There's a similar purpose, I think, of this kind of portraiture. And that is to elicit from us as viewers questions about the women that you see. And that's what an ordinary person passing these women in the context of the city probably otherwise would not do. You would just walk by them. A second kind of portraiture situates women and their work in a broader social, economic, social and economic environment. Patel renders working women visible by carefully associating them with a particular part of the city. In fact, as he labeled each of these photographs for an exhibition in 2014-2015, um, you'll see the titles on the slides are all have a specific location. So this is the Manikchak. Manikchak in Ahmedabad is the old municipal market, old city central market. Municipal markets were indeed sites of considerable colonial surveillance. They were closely monitored for their commercial productivity. The state reported the kinds of goods sold, the quantity of the goods, the price of the goods. This was a preoccupation of the colonial state, which used this information to legitimize its rules 
by sustaining an argument that the economic health and progress of India was produced by the imperial project. But rarely did archival records of markets like Manikshaw provide any detail about the actual people, male or female, upon whose labor these commercial activities and uh, so critical to imperial ideology actually rely. Colonial records, in other words, provide little information about women, about ordinary workers, about the marginalized that we might use to write history, other than a history of the colonial state or colonial elite. In this photograph, selling chilies in the Manikchak, Patel directs his prospective spectator's attention to a young woman weighing chilies by photographing her in the midst of her workplace. She stands out against the produce that entirely surround her, surrounds her. The market's vitality is apparent from a blur Patel includes in his image. He draws the spectator's attention to the market's customers by capturing a shadow of a person making a purchase. The context in which he captures this woman's work emphasizes her relationship to her customers and thus to us as spectators. In the foreground and background, we see other chili sellers. And I want to emphasize again, this is a space in which both men and women are working side by side. So Manikchak was not a gender segregated commercial space as colonial officials often argued. The photograph in Manikchak demonstrates how Patel's vernacular humanizing gaze effectively challenges the archival view of women's labor as domestic, as marginalized and as peripheral. Through framing, he depicts his subject as active, as integral, as part of a larger social and economic world, early industrialization in India. Patel depicts the connection between his subject and the broader city, even as his subjects continued to be marginalized socially from their, from their audience. And we see something similar in another image I really love, selling bottle sticks near the Ellis Bridge. Ellis Bridge is like the, the original and main bridge across uh, the river Sabarmati to the new side of the city. Patel's photographs present ordinary women as subjects as prospective citizens of nationalist India by binding them to the everyday life of their spectators. Because the Jyoti Sangh made no use of Patel's photographs, as I said, we're left to conclude that it didn't satisfy whatever needs they had. So what would it take for these women at work to be seen? It was several decades before an Amthavadi labor activist repositioned the Jyoti Sun series within the consciousness of the city. In post-colonial India, Patel's photographs found a new contact, context that was distinct from that in which they had been created. That context was the movement for the rights of women workers under Indian labor law. In 1973, the late Ila Ben Butt, a, a lawyer and founder of the Self-Employed Women's Association, witnessed a devastating accident involving uh, Kanku Rana, a hand cart puller whose knees were both broken as she struggled to stop her cart at a traffic intersection in response to a policeman's signal. Looking into the matter in the hope of aiding Rana, Bud discovered 
that India's labor laws did not recognize Rana as a worker, rendering her ineligible for workers' compensation for the injuries she had sustained. After a nine-year legal struggle, Bhatt secured limited compensation for Rana, as well as reconsideration of informal workers in terms of rights to fair pay, access to bank loans, health services, childcare under Indian labor law. More than 30 years after independence, India's labor laws changed to acknowledge workers like Rana and the women Patel had photographed decades earlier. But unionized women workers in Ahmedabad and in doing so, made informal labor a visible subject. Eventually, she approached Patel about displaying his Jyoti Sang photographs for Seva's newly renovated headquarters. But's use was not simply aesthetic or decorative. It was a choice both to recognize the changes that Seva achieved over the course of nearly three decades, and also to normalize the idea of women as workers outside the home, not only within the formal sectors of the economy, educated professionals, but also for the largely, the largely illiterate women that Seva served. The organization pursued seeing the work of women laborers by making Patel's women workers visible to Seva's members, visually laying claim to the status of women workers as subjects, and also laying claim to their, that they're laying claim to the position of citizens in a modern Indian democratic state. Nearly a decade after their display by Seva, selected photographs from the series were presented. This time, the Times of India announced the rebirth of the Jyoti Sang. It had become dormant in the city. Many, if not most of the founding generation had passed away. And in 2009, a new reconstituted leadership sought to attract a new younger generation of women to the organization. Working with an ar architect, Snehal Ben Nagarsev, they designed a welcome and information space that would host public lectures and functions of citywide interest. The Jyoti Sung presented an exhibition that highlighted the early activities of the organization. After 70 years, the Jyoti Sung had finally arrived at a narrative that would support the use of the photographs they had commissioned so many decades earlier. Patel's photographs as displayed, however, emphasized something quite different than that expressed in the Seva offices or indeed suggested by Patel's series. The selection and the display placed emphasis on the critical role of the organization's members in the life of working women in the city. So if you remember the first slides that I showed you of the women of the Jyoti Sun, these are the kinds of images that you see in the Jyoti Sung's refurbished offices. Jyoti Sung members were the acting subjects and citizens of modern India, according to their display. A spectator might still catch a glimpse of the chili seller described, but in the exhibition, she was presented as a type of woman who relied upon and was uplifted by the Jyoti Sung's efforts. The subject citizen of the photographs as represented by the Jyoti Sung were unmistakably Jyoti Sun members themselves. 
Let's return to humanistic, let's turn to now humanistic study and the ethical practices that in, should inform our use of historical photography. As Elizabeth Edwards makes clear, the context in which we reconstruct and read historical photographs does not end with the period in which they were created. Quote, inscription implies a desire for permanence, a setting down, a chance of longevity. History, as we could say, constituted by the past of human life, quietly contained, stored, and transported through inscriptions. Photographs are integral to these fundamental practices, not only because they do inscribe past moments and surfaces, but because they massively extend the idea of what historical inscriptions might be. They disturb the surface of the documentation of the past, right, the archive. One of the most exciting facets of the photographs is its ability to be seen by later viewers, myself, you, people who go into the Jyoti Sang or the Seva offices. Decades later, I unexpectedly came across this series as I explained earlier. The exhibition at Hamilton provided Patel with an opportunity to return to 100 subjects he had created earlier. It enabled him to exhibit a part of the, this part of the series for the first time. Patel gave each photograph a title in this process, as I described, and as I probed his memory for additional information, we went through these off prints from many dec decades ago, he remembered all kinds of specifics about the compositional or technical choices of a particular image. Sometimes his memory, perhaps too conveniently, aligned with my own priorities. The exhibition provided me with an opportunity to make visible aspects of women's labor in the 1930s. Provincial reports and imperial commissions produced so much economic date, data, but almost nothing right, about these kinds of subjects. His photographs, Patel's photographs, def defied the comfortable consensus born of official records. And the Jyoti Sun series has enabled me to move beyond the allure of a colonial archive to purposely reconstruct a more representative, if still incomplete, picture of daily life in the city. I'm gonna close with a couple of, uh, a comparison of two images and I'll be interested to see how you react to them. The first is Patel's image carrying goods at the Kalapur railway station. It turned out when I did the exhibition and I, I had mapped out all the locations in these photographs and I was wondering how to organize them, that the exhibition actually kind of began, was ordered with this uh, particular image. It, uncannily corresponds to a very famous, much more famous, well-known photograph taken by the magnum photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson some 30 years later. The coincidence of the images propelled me to make the railway station starting point for the exhibition, informed as much by the array of Patel's photographs as by Cartier's Bresson's ability to see the same subject in starkly different terms. Cartier Bresson saw the same workers not as subjects like Patel,
but as emblems of the city of Andaman and the grinding poverty of a developing society. It also seemed fitting that the starting point of this exhibition might be with a, a handcart puller, given that it had been Rana who had galvanized Butt's legal fight for the recognition of women's labors. But the historical think space left by inscriptions created by Patel in 1937, I reimagined the city's life through women at work, beginning early each morning with the arrival of food, raw materials, and finished goods at Amdabad's railway station. From there, various kinds of informal laborers photographed by Patel touched the goods that made, the wear, made their way through the city's thoroughfares to its major markets to be sold. These goods sustained the lives of industrializing Amdabad in 1937 through the labor required, though, although the labor required was invisible, not only to the colonial state, but at the time to the city's middle-class consumers. Patel's series enabled a new historical argument about the period that no part of the city's material life was untouched by women and that modern industrial life in Amdabad as elsewhere depended upon labor that was also feminine. These photographs languished in boxes of nearly neatly stacked offerings stored in Patel's home for decades due to a double blindness to the informal work of women and their critical role in, modern, in a modern industrial Indian economy. The work of Ilavan Butts Self-Employed Women's Association rendered that double blindness untenable when it exposed gaps in India's otherwise labor-friendly legal frameworks. Appealing to Azalea's ethics of the spectator as Butt first displayed Patel's photographs, creating a context in which Patel's photographs could speak of subject citizens marginalized but no longer invisible. This shift constituted critical new context in which Patel's women workers can be recognized, necessitating historians like myself to revise our representations of early industrial India. What I wanna do is just end here by, by using Azalea's words um, to kind of propel you maybe to think about historical photography not only as something that can tell us about the past. We can gather many details, right, about the roles of women in work in the city in this period, uh, the places that they worked, the people they worked beside, surely. But we can also use these photographs today to sensitize ourselves, to make it possible for us to see these women, right, and other marginalized people in India's society and to act uh, maybe for a more just and equitable future. As R. Srivatsan uh, wrote, can we engage the his historical photograph, quote, to resist the immediate sense that the image offers, to address the range of effects that it has, and to work on the ways it shapes us so that we emerge from this engagement with a subjectivity that is empowered against contemporary oppression and has provided a chance to fight those to come. That is where I will end. Thank you very much. Here's Pranwal Patel in 2015.
Thank you for your patience with that presentation. I'm happy to take any questions um, that you might have. Yeah, please. That's a very interesting question. So I, I guess I'll answer it in two ways. Uh, the first you can continue. Okay. The, the first thing that I will say is I would argue that Patel had consent to take these photographs. As I said, um, he only took one shot. So his method was actually to ride his bicycle to the area of the city where he, want, he wanted to take a particular photograph of a kind of work, and he would engage his subject. That's one of the reasons why I think the women are photographed and maybe the woman who's sorry is untied you know, isn't particularly bothered by this young man who's taking her photograph. I mean, photographs were seen in this period in newspapers, but these subjects are not those that are really reading newspapers. So it's not clear how much they understood what would happen with the photograph. But my sense is from his notes in his journals about this period that he was engaged in conversation so that he could compose the photograph for light and frame accordingly before he took the shot. Um, the question that you're asking is how do we look at the photographs as contemporary, uh, right? As contemporary viewers, are we allowed to? And I guess what I would, it, it's, uh, it's a vexed question. It's a hard question, but I guess I would answer with Azalea. She believes that once the photograph exists, we have an ethical responsibility to engage it because that subject who is pictured can only express, make their claim uh, for greater power or for recognition if we engage it. So it, it's actually unethical for us not to engage it is, is the argument that Azalee makes. And she is writing about a very different um, context. She's actually writing about the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, and so I encourage you to look, at, look for that book, uh, the, the Civil Contract of Photography, um, because particularly given what is unfolding in Gaza today, uh, I think it's a really powerful, she's an Israeli herself. Um, I think it's a really powerful argument for why we shouldn't look away from historical photography. I, I mean, can I go back to the staged photograph? That's the question. Uh, yes, I think I can. Shared screen. That's uh, not giving me shared screen. Option. Yeah. Maybe. Those meetings of, you know, some of the pictures, looking at them all together, there was the, uh, the picture of the milk seller and the lady who owned the shop. And I noticed that they were second subjects in it. But I've also sort of looking at it, you can see that none of the subjects, whether the primary or the secondary, are actually sort of gazing back at the photography. 
there are very few who are looking directly at the um you know i i don't have a good answer for why they are not looking back um i think when we are used to having our photographs taken that's what we're doing right and i i kind of suspect that they weren't fully aware of what it is that is being produced enough to have that. Um, there are a few of them, a few of the photographs where women are looking back and I may just not have uh, chosen that. You can see in some of the group photographs, like the women who are embroidering in the pole, some of them are looking right at the camera, um, but that may just have been the selection um, more than, you know, then they're, they're totally shying away. They haven't been um, disciplined into having a photograph. And this is not studio photography. So if you think about who are the people who would look at the photographer, it's the middle-class people or elites who are in a photography studio to make an image, which is gonna serve a certain um, status reason, right? <laughs> But again, these are also sort of citizenships, sort of citizens in action. Yeah. Rather than starting figures. Yeah. And they're kind of nascent citizens, right? And so maybe we look at this as a process of becoming a citizen. I haven't really, you know, thought too much more along those lines, but um, that's sort of the sketch of how I'm thinking about the photographs. I'd like to do more work specifically on the Jyoti Sung, which has not been widely written about uh, because I'm, I'm I'm leveling a pretty serious critique about their recent activities, and um, you know I'd like to be fair to their earlier period to the to this period if I could. One of the things that convention of beauty and attraction across time, and at this point in time, one of the the things associated with elegance. Uh, not to say privilege, but elegance with beauty is the photograph taken at a three-quarter angle. Mm -hmm. Remember, it's a sign. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it a was... four angle in profile. That's because it's a posh intellectual. But it's not with respect to camera. Think about my photographs. The images of criminality and race that people are looking right at. So I think that what he's doing is he's basically giving us a conventional elegance. In, in their composition. He's also, yeah, he is usually at an angle and he, something else that's very unusual for him is that he's also often photographing these women at the same level or from slightly below. And that puts the, that puts him in a, in a subordinated position to them, right? It aggrandizes their position, maybe romanticizes their work a little bit, um, but I think he's really trying to give them due. He's trying to respect, I think, the work that they do. He had sold snacks and newspapers as a kid, uh, as, as a young elementary and middle school student. So I think he feel, felt a lot of um, sympathy or connection with the subjects he, he photographed. Then I will turn over the session to our next speaker. And you can wrap it up. With that, we close the India Central Lecture and we continue with our presentation.